This morning we're starting our spring and early summer series on uh, the letter of James. Uh, hopefully you've picked that up from the communications we've sent out in the last couple of weeks. Just a reminder, on the church's website, you will uh, almost always within a couple of days find the sermons up there. And then there's also a sermon page, and there you will find uh, just a little bit of background information as well as links to the main uh, book resources I'm using uh, for this sermon. Those books there are not everything I'm using, but they are um, the major ones. I'm assuming and hoping that this uh, series will go into June, and then um, we'll do something else for the later part of the summer. But before we start into James, we need to deal with one issue. If you know anything about the Bible, especially the New Testament, if you know anything about church history, particularly around the Reformation, if you know anything about some of the fundamental differences that have divided the churches of the West since the 16th century, you know the controversy around the letter of James. Martin Luther, the great reformer, the man of, quote, salvation through grace alone, by faith alone, through Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, did not have much good to say about this letter of James. For example, this quote of his, Away with James! His authority is not great enough to cause me to abandon the doctrine of faith alone and to deviate from the authority of the other apostles and the entire scripture. St. James' epistle is really an epistle of straw compared to those others, for it has nothing of the stature of of the nature of the gospel about it. A huge discussion around the letter of James since the Reformation is how this letter, in its insistence that faith does not stand alone, the only verse in the New Testament in which faith and works are in the same verse are in James, and James is really clear. As you can see, a man is justified by his deeds and not by faith alone. How does this letter fit into the faith alone concept? And how do we reconcile the message of James with what is commonly known as the gospel of grace alone? Without discounting the last centuries of theological study and development, and certainly not to say or imply that I have all wisdom and understanding and knowledge, let me share with you my perspective, which is not one that I've made up. It's one that's shared by many in our time. If your fundamental understanding of the gospel or the good news is that it answers the question, how do I get to heaven after my death? Then the fundamental discussion centers around what do I need to do or believe to receive that pass into heaven? What's the combination of things I need to do or believe? It's a perfectly logical discussion. And it makes perfect sense that if this is the paradigm... The conflict between the message of James, faith plus works, 
And the message of Paul, faith alone, is a focal point of much theological argument. With James being, as Luther does, discounted as a gospel book, or, and this is what you tend to read in most commentaries nowadays, what I call a lot of exegetical gyrations to show that James is really, after all, all about grace. And it's a really important discussion because it determines a very important thing in this paradigm. What's my eternity going to look like? But imagine that the fundamental question answered by the Bible and by the New Testament is not, how do I get into heaven? Or what must I do or believe to escape the wrath of an angry God? Or what must I do or believe in order that God will love me? What if it wasn't fundamentally or primarily about how you get that ticket into God's eternal kingdom? What if the message of the gospel is, and I'm quoting N.T. right here, Jesus is Lord. God raised him from the dead. When Jesus died on the cross and rose from the tomb, he launched God's new world. Diana Butler Bass puts it another way. The root concept of salvation is salvus, meaning to make whole or to heal. Salvation is about healing here, now, making wounded and broken and sinful people whole. Marcus Borg put it another way. Imagine that Christianity is about loving God. Imagine that it's not about myself and its concerns. That it's not about what's in it for me, whether that be a blessed afterlife or prosperity in this life. What if it doesn't fundamentally center around me and what happens to me? And what if it's about the call on each of us to give our allegiance to this Jesus, this King, above all other allegiances and join God's work of recreating, renewing, making whole our broken and sinful world. This whole message has, of course, implications for after death, but that's not its primary focus. That's not the fundamental question the New Testament is answering. Put another way, this is the movement I've spoken about before here a number of times. It's seeing the church not as a lifeboat, but as a colony. The question is not what kind of a ticket, faith or works or some combination of both, do I need to be allowed into the lifeboat? The question is, what do I need to change in my life? Repentance. What do we need to change in our lives, corporate repentance, so that this new kingdom can take shape here on earth and become the kind of place that God intended it to be from the beginning? And from that perspective, 
I believe, Paul and James can live very nicely together without any stress. They each come from different perspectives. They each address different contexts. They emphasize different themes, but both are focused on trying to help the early church and the church through the ages, including ours, to understand what it means that Jesus inaugurated a new world and how we should live in that new world in our time as a colony of that kingdom. This is a real short summary of how I'm approaching James. Hopefully it will be further, further worked out as we go along. I understand this is not new thinking to you, I think, from me, but I understand that this may raise some real questions or even disagreement with me. And I hope that if that's the case, please feel free to chat with me about it, to share and exchange thoughts so that we can better understand together what the meaning of the gospel is and the call of Jesus on our life and world. It's just a little introduction to deal with this issue that if you read anything about James at all, even if you Google the letter of James, this is one of the first things that comes up on your Google screen. The Bible Project, of course, has a video introduction to James. It's fairly lengthy. It's about eight minutes long, so I've just cut it uh, quite a bit. So we're just going to give one little piece of it today, just a very brief introduction to James, and I'll be showing other bits of it later. But uh, watch uh, this video to get from the Bible Project an introduction to this letter. The letter of James, or at least that's his name in English. If you look in the Greek, you will see that his name is Jakobos, which translates his Hebrew name Yaakov. And that's why most ancient and modern translations render his name as Jacob, and that's what we're going to call him in this video. Now, there are many Jacobs in the New Testament. Two of them belong to Jesus' inner circle of the twelve disciples, but this letter comes from the Jacob, who was the half-brother of Jesus himself. Now, we learn this Jacob's story from the book of Acts, and from Paul's letters. After Peter moved on from Jerusalem to go start new churches, Jesus' half-brother Jacob rose to prominence as a leader in the mother church in Jerusalem. It was made up mostly of Messianic or Christian Jews. This was the first Christian community ever, and we know that it fell on hard times during the 20 years that Jacob was its leader. There was a famine that led to great poverty in the region, and these Messianic Jews were being persecuted by Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. But through it all, Jacob was known as a pillar of the Jerusalem church. He was also known as a peacemaker who led with wisdom and courage until he was tragically murdered. And in this book, we have the legacy of Jacob's teaching and wisdom condensed into a short and very powerful work. The book begins like a letter. He greets all the Messianic Jews who are living outside the land of Israel. But this does not read like one of Paul's letters where he addresses specific problems in one local church. Rather, this book is a summary of Jacob's sage wisdom for any and every community of Jesus' followers. And Jacob's goal isn't to teach new theological information. Rather, he wants to get in your business and challenge how you live. Jacob's wisdom has been heavily influenced by two sources. The first is Jesus' teaching about life in the kingdom of God, especially the Sermon on the Mount, which he's constantly echoing and quoting in the book. The second key influence is the biblical wisdom book of Proverbs, especially the poems in Proverbs 1 through 9. 
Jacob literally grew up with Jesus and with the book of Proverbs, and so now his own teaching sounds like them. It's stamped by their language and imagery. The book consists of short, challenging wisdom speeches that are full of metaphors and easy-to-memorize one-liners. And in essence, Jacob is calling the Messianic community to become truly wise by living according to Jesus' summary of the Torah, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. The body of the book is in chapters 2. So James was the half-brother of Jesus, who led the church in Jerusalem for about 20 years during the time of persecution until he was stoned to death by the Pharisees, according to the historian Josephus, in about 64, 62, 64 A.D. If you, of course, uh, go into the books and materials about James, there's all kinds of discussions there about whether it really was the half-brother of James in general, most people seem to think, the half-brother of Jesus, most people seem to think that that's who it was. Uh, there's fairly good evidence that that's the case, so that's just what I'm sticking with, partly because I don't have enough knowledge to really contest that seriously. Another issue is the time of writing, and I find this a much more important issue for understanding the book. There's, of course, all kinds of discussions about when the book was written. But in general, the consensus is that this book of James, this letter of James, was written during a very um, clear period that you find in the book of Acts. And it starts with with Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And I think that verse will be projected on your screen. There we go. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. This is after the stoning death of Stephen, which you may remember if you remember that story in the book of Acts. So after the death of Stephen, there arose a great persecution, and the church became scattered. And the next chapters of Acts tell about how the gospel spread out from Jerusalem to Samaria. You remember that story? to the Ethiopian eunuch. We went through Acts a year or so ago. Then Saul was converted. Saul, this person who was instrumental in persecuting the church, was converted. Then there was the conversion of the uh, Roman centurion Cornelius with Peter. The church in Antioch, the first real foreign city, was founded. There was a very clear persecution by Herod. Then there was Paul's first missionary journey. He went out into uh, Asia Minor, what's now Turkey, and came back after that short journey. And so in this period of time between Acts 8 and Acts 15, the church was pushed out of Jerusalem by persecution, but also because of the missionary zeal of someone like Paul. And in Acts chapter 15, you may remember there's this story of the council of Jerusalem, the first council, the time the church got together to ask themselves the question, okay, all these things have changed. The Gentiles are coming in. How are we going to live as a church? And it's really fascinating in that uh, at the end of that meeting, after everybody has spoken who wanted to spoke to speak, James stands up. And I think I have that verse on the screen. After they had finished speaking, James stands up and he says, Brothers, listen to me. And then he makes this speech, and then he concludes, 
my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Though James is this central figure who wraps up this period of time, this period of a few years signified between Acts 8 and Acts 15. And it's thought that somewhere in there, James wrote this letter. This is a time of transition, a time where the church is being pushed out of its normal place, a time where Gentiles are starting to join the communities, new things are happening, new questions are arising. And if you remember from our recently completed study of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy was also written in that same kind of time. You remember, the Israelites were just getting ready to move into the land of Canaan, either for the first time back under Moses, or for the second time after the exile, just a few hundred years before the birth of Christ. And you remember that quote that we had from Walter Brueggemann, God's people are standing on a threshold. They look backward to rootage and forward to crisis, and Deuteronomy interprets at the precise place where rootage and crisis intersect. And that's what you have with James. This whole Old Testament, this whole Jewish community, these people that believe that they're called by God, that the Messiah is going to come from him, and that the Messiah has actually come, But now they're looking ahead into going out to the world. The Gentiles are coming in. All these ethical and social and cultural and economic and political questions are arising. And right there, James writes this letter. says, this is how this colony of God's people should live. This is not about a ticket how to get to heaven. This is about how do we live as this colony of God's people, representatives, ambassadors of God, this new kingdom in this new world in which we find ourselves. And so James opens the book, chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. James, everyone knows him. He doesn't have to introduce himself. He doesn't have to say, I'm an apostle, or I'm a missionary, or I'm an elder, or anything. Everybody knows this is James, the brother of Jesus, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Easy, this is James. And then he says, I'm a servant, or I'm a slave. And this is an indication that James has, is voluntarily putting himself in the position of a servant of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the commentaries that I read on this, the one written by Martha Morquise, says, what, what James is doing by this word and, God and the Lord Jesus Christ, is saying that the way of God and the way of Jesus 
are one and the same. Commentators note that James is here not trying to explain the nature of Christ. If you're at all familiar with church history, you know that for the first three or four hundred years of church history, huge discussions went on about the nature of Christ. Is he a created being? Is he the firstborn of created beings? Can it be that he is co-equal with God, co-eternal of one substance? All those discussions were going on. But James isn't in those discussions yet. That's not what's happening here. He's saying the way of God and the way of Jesus are one and the same. James' concern is not with who Christ is, the the big expensive word is, his ontological nature, his being, but that the the way of life of Jesus and therefore the community of Jesus' followers aligns with the wise and merciful way of God. So, so James is, is pounding on the fact that this Jesus, who was his half-brother, who he grew up with, and who everybody there in Jerusalem knew, they probably had all met him, saying, this Jesus is our Lord, our Christ, our Messiah, and following him aligns with what God has given us down through the centuries. And when he refers to the 12 tribes that are in the dispersion, that's what he's making allusion to. This great history going all the way back to Abraham of God having chosen Israel to be the instrument through which all peoples on earth, all families on earth would be blessed. And James, in a word or two, is making that linkage. And then he says, James, a servant of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. And the word greetings here is the word joy be to you. It's not just like hello. It's not just like dear John. It's a very specific word that's only used a couple other times. Actually, it's only used in this form in a way of of greeting somebody. When in Acts chapter 15, the church writes a letter to the Gentiles, and the first word of that letter is exactly the same word. That letter was probably written partly by James because he was the leader then. And James is saying, joy be to you. It's the same word as he uses in the next verse. Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So James is saying to a church in crisis, to a people who aren't sure what the future is going to look like, to a people who are sometimes confused and sometimes wondering and under persecution, and enduring hardship, his first word to those people is joy be to you. And that's what I want to leave you with as we start this journey through James. The very first word of James to us is joy be to you. 
Joy is a huge and complex topic. I'm not even going to try to get into it right now. I'm just planting the word in front of you to let you think about it, to let you take it home. What does joy mean? What does it say that God, through James, says to you, joy be to you in the circumstances in which you find yourself today? If that isn't a timely word for today's world, I don't know what is. Joy be to you. And remember that in the book of Hebrews, it says that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. And that's why this morning we go to the communion table. Because Jesus endured the cross. He endured the pain and suffering. He endured all that the, e- the kingdom of darkness and evil had to throw at him. And he did it because of the joy that was set before him. So that James, a few years later, could write to this church in crisis, Joy be to you. So as you come this morning, I encourage you to come to Christ as you are in your circumstances, in your situation, and to think about what it could look like that the joy that James speaks about, the joy that was before Christ, that enabled him to endure the trials that he was going through, was his. And to take comfort and to take hope and to take meaning, and to take reason to get up in the morning from the fact that there is a joy set before us that comes directly from God through this Christ who gave himself for us and for all peoples. Amen.